0: to how publishing works from Caxton to Kindle. I'm Kate MacDonald and I'm your host. I'm in conversation today with Lisa Dowdswell, Head of Literary Estates at the Society of Authors in the UK, welcome.
1: Thank you, lovely to be here.
0: Good to have you here. So let's start with the basics. What are publishing
1: rights? Publishing rights, I think it really just start with copyright. Um, so when an author creates a work, they are the first owner of the copyright and copyright law protects the work and makes it illegal for others from using it without permission. And so the rights are the different ways in which the work can be exploited. So for example, into print publication, um, as an ebook or into audio, and then rights can be sublicensed, for example, um, into translation and film rights, TV rights, and numerous other opportunities to exploit these rights.
0: Let's unpack the idea of publishing rights um, and let's start with a hypothetical novel. What possible uses can that novel be put to?
1: I think what authors need to understand is when they create something, they create a work, they also create a valuable set of rights. These are the publishing rights. Um, So a novel, um, obviously it could be um, printed into a, a, a print publication. it can be electronic publication, but it can also be an audio publication. It can be adapted into a film or a stage play or it can be performed on the radio. It could even be turned into an app. There will be merchandising rights. You know if you create characters, these could be um, sold into to merchandising companies. I mean, just such a variety of ways. So this is why we, particularly because copyright lasts so long for 70 years, we ask ask authors to be really careful how they license these rights and to whom and for how long.
0: And that, that is quite terrifying if you think about it because it's a proliferation of uses and every single use must have a contract and must be checked up on for certain things.
1: And I think when authors get their first contract, they're so excited. It's like their book is going to be published. But, you know, you've got to be careful what rights you're granting to any publisher and what rights they will exploit and be able to exploit. Otherwise, it's best to retain them.
0: And what happens when a publisher retains the rights but does nothing with
1: them? Well, this happens all the time. This is um, the Society of Authors as part of the contracts team. This is... Um, authors not being able to get their rights back is a, is, um, a big problem, um, publishers sitting on rights that they were never really going to exploit in the first place. Um, what we do advise, if you are going to give certain rights away, um, to invoke a use it or lose it clause. So. If the rights rights say haven't been exploited for film or TV or in translation for a period, say from a year from publication or two years, then the rights will revert to the author and some some publishers will agree to that, but generally speaking, we ask um, authors to be really careful about-
0: so that those are live authors um, who have a say in which rights they want to to license or to sell on. what about dead authors? How do literary estates work with the society of authors to deal with
1: the the rights that are still in, in copyright well in some ways the same way i mean because copyright mm-hmm. lasts for so long it's 70 years um the rights you know an author's rights will be handed down to their beneficiaries um and sometimes the beneficiaries of the beneficiaries because it is such a long period and you know their work will still be published um and adapted into like i described into maybe a film or a tv programme. So, in in many ways, the same, really. And um, we do have a lot of authors' estates who join us as members. And, of course, we look after about 40 literary um, estates in an agency capacity.
0: And one of those is the estate of George Bernard Shaw. Yes. And one of your estates is that of Harley Granville Barker, who was a Great Edwardian Victorian playwright. Yes yes and that had a bit of a wrinkle didn't it because one of his properties suddenly popped up out of nowhere.
1: Well yes, actually, even though all um, Barker's work went out of copyright in 2016, we well we actually someone else discovered in an archive a play that had never been performed in his lifetime. Probably for obvious reasons, but anyway, they they dusted it off and uh, performed it at the um, uh, Bristol Old Vic, I think it was. And that actually gave the work a new copyright Ah. because there's different laws with posthumous copyright. So even though, you know, we can still now license this play until 2039. That is
0: extraordinary. So long after, (laughs) 150 years after he was born, he is one of his works.
1: Well, well that's the example i think i usually um give with the bernard shaw estate um bernard shaw died in 1950 um at the age of 95 and we were still licensing his plays which were written in the late 19th century up until 2020 when they actually did go out of copyright and constantly licensing i mean very popular european theater big post-class stage productions um, the properties went in and out of fashion in the UK, but, you know, we've had some major publishers on the West, um, productions on the West End and constantly licensed as well. Amateur licensing as well. It was very popular. Mm. What
0: What's the difference between amateur licensing and professional stage licensing?
1: Yeah, well, with amateur licensing, they are always, I mean, from our point of view, we would always license non-exclusively. Um and we would usually charge, say, a f- flat fee per performance, and the licence would just last for the length of you know, the performances. It's usually whether it's seven performances over a week or...
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And with professional licensings, different categories, with the fringe, you'd usually, they would take exclusivity for a certain period, as long as that production lasts, and they would usually pay in advance in royalties. Right.
0: And exclusivity means that nobody else would have the right to pre- present that.
1: Yes, yes, we wouldn't give the rights to anybody else during that period, so nobody could do a competing play in the next village or something.
0: And can you also explain the reason why J.M. Barry's play Peter Pan, the rights, the profits from the rights? I think that's the wrong way of saying it. Anyway.
1: Yeah, that this, this is quite unusual. Um, I think it was in the 1988 Copyright Act that they gave the... Um, work perpetual copyright status. And I don't think it's ever been done before or ever will, but it's um, it's quite extraordinary. So, yes. So, and and the proceeds go to Great Ormond Street Hospital. So they will um, get the benefit of all productions, um, film, TV and the books.
0: So what author, what should authors be aware of when they are signing a contract or considering signing a contract? What should they absolutely not do?
1: Well, they absolutely should not sign anything that they don't fully understand what they're signing up to. And what they should do is join the Society of Authors, which offers a full vetting service for contracts. So when we're advising the members, we keep these main considerations in mind, I would say. So it's the grant of rights, the type of licence and sadly termination, which is actually one of the most important clauses. In the contract, so the scope of the grant should depend on the type of publisher. So, there are in the work, so by way of an advance, the print run, marketing. Um, so, a big publisher paying say hundred thousand pounds would expect a wide grant of rights. Although, if the author is agented, they will the agent will retain certain rights um, and sell them separately. But generally speaking, if an author isn't agented, um, they will probably license their work for the full period of copyright, again, 70 years, and license a wide set of rights. Usually, yes, because usually big publishers will have an experienced rights team as well, so they'll have a foreign rights department, they'll have a film and TV department, so you know they can um, exploit these rights company. Um So small, maybe a small press with limited funds paying little or no advance, they should really only be granted the rights so that they will be able to exploit themselves and not as we mentioned before, sit on rights that they have no idea or how to exploit or contacts in the industry. Um, So the type of license is, normally it would be an exclusive license. Uh, Most publishers would expect that. Um, But some licenses are non-exclusive. For example, print permissions licenses, if we're licensing. Um, Somebody wants to um, quote an extract from another person's work or if they want to include a poem in an anthology, these licenses will usually be non-exclusive for a one-off fee. And sometimes there is an assignment of copyright, which um, we don't recommend generally, but sometimes publishers insist on taking copyright. And this might not always be unreasonable, for example, with a work containing short entries by a large number of different contributors, a commissioned non-fiction work, or something that's very academic. But if you do, sign copyright we'd advise some safeguards um which we could advise you on of course but um like payment upfront um proper credit and no changes without consent
0: Mm. is it possible to assign the copyright for a set term so that the copyright eventually comes back to the author
1: i think there are probably circumstances if the the publisher goes out of business, but generally, we use you know, when you sign copyright, you're giving something away. Generally speaking, it's gone, so you need to make sure you've got those safeguards in that you get properly paid, properly credited, you know, and, and also that you could maybe be able to use chunks of it for if you're an academic, for example, for your own research um, and future work.
0: Yeah, and that's what used to happen in the 19th century. Authors we consider to be absolutely great and classic now would routinely sell their copyright. So they would just get the one fee and that was it. They would lose everything that came after. So yes, it's a tricky one. So like me, you are part of the community of archive moles, um, literary estate detectives who hunt down missing heirs from missing literary estates. How much of your role is taken up rummaging in archives?
1: Well, we do a lot of rummaging in our own archives, not Anyone else's particularly, but um, we're constantly. I mean, we we've, we've been going. The Society of Authors has been going since um, nineteen. Eight, sorry, eighteen eighty four. So a lot of our contracts are very old, and sometimes we usually need to consult them in order to ascertain, you know, what the right situation is. Quite often with old contracts with old film rights, you'll find out as we've just spoken. Um, that they've actually been sold and so we can't license these things but it's quite interesting and we do love a bit of a rummage and we come across all sorts of lovely you know handwritten notes by or a postcard by Bernard Shaw or something like that um, but sadly when we moved office in 2019 we um, scanned or we paid to somebody to scan all our, all our box files um, so yeah it's a lot easier now but it's not not as much fun.
0: Now what happened to the original um, documents then did they go to the British Library?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, we've got, I think, the first couple of tranches at the British Library and we've got one tranche at the University of Reading. Um, it's not just the industry of States, it's the whole of Society's archives. So.
0: Yeah, and uh, the University of Reading Special Collections is one of the most important open access, public access archives for the history of publishing. I've done so much work there. It's, it's just a fabulous thing. Um, But I have done less in archives at the British Library, so I should have done more, I suppose. Ha! Yes. I find it odd that when I'm looking for a literary estate, it's a very piecemeal process. There is the WATCH file, which is um, this fantastic database set up by University of Reading and the Harry Ransom Center at University of Texas in Austin. So you can look at this online. And just type in the name of the author you're trying to track down the agent for and then a reply will come up it's it was set up and it was great but i'm not entirely sure how up to date it is because occasionally i think oh no that author or the agent will say no we no longer handle those rights we don't have them at all um is there any other central repository or what what are your best
1: tips for how to find I think the actual, the the watch, the writers and the copyright holders site is probably the best we're going to get at the moment. And it's, you know, it's, uh, I actually, yesterday, I probably had about four queries, which um, uh, were, were found on that site. But I think it's more problematic with more obscure authors and works. Um, but it's, you know, a, a database is only as good as, the information it receives yeah. and if people are going to update the information it's it's frustrating it's a minefield um and it's something um the society of authors gets asked i mean like i said i probably had four or five yesterday mm-hmm. just to me personally and um, let alone the, the membership team who constantly asked and so mainly we do refer to the watch and also alcs the um authors licensing collecting Society. Have a, you know, they pay out a huge numbers of authors and they've got a really good database, so they are really good. Um, I mean, some agencies and publishers have dedicated estates pages, so you can find their estates. It's it's very difficult. Um, we actually produce a guide to copyright permissions, which gives a section on how to trace a copyright owner, and that's actually free to download for ed- anyone can do that. Um, I think you know you've had to do this for obtain an author's will. I have,
0: <laughs> yeah, that was a hunt, yeah, so what do you do when about publishing rights when the heir to a literary estate can't be found like it's known that that, that heir exists, but it's not known if they're dead
1: or alive I, nothing nothing changes about the rights situation, but um. I mean, sometimes after exhausting all avenues, some publishers will publish with a disclaimer saying that all reasonable endeavours have been made to trace the rights owners, etc., and anyone claiming copyright should come forward. But we have to stress that disclaimers do not afford legal protection, and this is somewhat risky, I suppose. But um, if published were to go ahead, it's advisable to set aside some money that they would have paid in by way of advance and royalties. There is an orphan works provision. The intellectual property office has um, certain rules you need to follow for due diligence and failing which you can apply for an orphan works licence. But I think these licences are quite limited. I mean, I think it also applies only for the UK. And
0: they're also really difficult to try and work out because I I have tried applying for an orphan licence and it ended up telling me, I well, the the, um, the automated process you go through on the website ended up telling me I would have to pay £10,000 at thereabouts, which is completely ridiculous.
1: Basically, this is a very frustrating. Yeah,
0: it's just not good. Yeah, the disclaimer is our best friend, I think. We've done our best!
1: With the caveat that it does not afford any legal protection, but, you know. But if you, if you can prove a paper trail and you've done your due diligence, it's very unlikely that an action would be taken against you and probably you would just pay what you would have paid anyway.
0: Yeah. 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 And then what happens when the rights from an estate are split between heirs who cannot agree, say one set of rights goes to a cat and dog's home and the other set of rights goes to an individual, but the home, the trustees of the home won't agree to allow, I don't know, something to go forward. Are you
1: stuck? It's a a nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) And this is why when authors are making their will, we really stress it's really important that authors think who they want to manage their works after their death. Um, Because intellectual property passes like any other property to the beneficiary to the will. I mean, these can be family members and family members fall out. Um, So we would usually advise that you... And quite often, if, you, if they had an agent, the agent would continue to manage the estate on behalf of the beneficiaries. But, you know, even if you just appoint a member of your family you can trust or a friend who's familiar with your work, to be the focal point and make all the decisions on behalf of the beneficiaries is highly recommended because I am sure a lot of publishers and agencies have horror stories of squabbling heirs, as we call them. And then the rights are in stalemate.
0: Because- yeah,
1: it's, it's dreadful.
0: I also had a case recently where I thought I had a lead into finding the, there was a will, the author died, leaving a will, nothing was said in the will about the literary estate, but there was a handwritten clause saying, and I give to my solicitor my verbal instructions, and la 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 la, and the solicitor was still alive, or at least the solicitor was still listed in company's house. So we wrote to that solicitor several times, absolute silence.
1: Please, please think about these things when you're making your will.
0: And also don't assume that if you only publish one book in your 20s and now you're 70, that nobody cares because they do. We really care about everything you've published. Somebody might need it somewhere.
1: This is an example with the literary states we represent. I mean, a lot of them are old properties, um, but things come in, in and out of fashion. I mean, a few years ago, we couldn't really sell our cosy crime office, and now it's a... <laughs> <laughs> so, they're so popular. They?
0: Wall to wall cosy crime everywhere you go. Well, that's lovely for the cosy crime world, and they must have been so delighted. <laughs> Can you explain the great copyright hopi- um, leapfrogging event in 1990? Um, no, not 90. It was in the 90s because John Buchan came out of copyright in 1990. That was because he'd been dead for 50 years and then the eu law changed and british copyright law had to change too it changed
1: i'm i think it was 1996 january the first 1996 right um when copyright got extended from 50 years to 70 years so authors that might have previously gone out of copyright suddenly came back into copyright
0: yeah and what difference did that make to publishers who had already brought out New editions without having to consult the, the estates? Did they have to have retrospective permission?
1: No, there was a, there was a grace there was a grace period of twenty years to harmonise it, so nobody could grant exclusivity in those licences until it caught up with the seventy years rule. Nobody could refuse permission, I don't think, but they had to pay a reasonable fee. I think that was called um, revived copyright. But I mean that that's not applicable now. It's that period it's gone. But yes, I mean, lots of um, lovely amateur production companies were absolutely horrified to realise that Bernard Shaw was now in copyright, (laughs) 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 got extended for another 20 years.
0: Yeah. Other countries' copyright can be a minefield. We also had a recent case which you kindly advised us on because one of our books for which we hold world rights um, in English suddenly came out in a new edition in the united states yes because the u.s in the u.s that author had come out of copyright and the publisher assumed we hope let's be charitable that that meant that the whole world could now publish that author so why i know copyright was a very complicated process at the beginning of the the 20th century and is is now pretty much under control but there's still a lot of significant differences between countries,
1: aren't there? Yeah, I mean, since the most territories are signed to the Berne Convention, which harmonises copyright law, or well, it tries to anyway, and the period of copyright in most territories is 70 years, and some countries still have 50, some, I think, like India, have 60. And But in older works, it's really difficult, especially with America. Um, and some are protected for 95 years from publication. So now, just trying to work backwards, anything published after 1928, it's likely to be in published in, in copyright in America now. Mm. And then, then you have the problem, like you were saying, that the property was in copyright in the UK, but out of copyright in America. So obviously American publishers could publish it without a license. And they seeped into the UK market because, I think, mainly out of ignorance because they just assumed it was out of copyright. Mm. But I think we find that once they're alerted to the fact, they will...
0: Oh, they did. They acted immediately. I was really impressed. The problem was that the book lingered on on ebook selling sites like Amazon, like Kobo. That just takes a bit longer to clear out. So can you give me three good reasons why authors should join the Society of Authors?
1: three good reasons um or more more is fine so the society of authors is um the uk's largest trade union for all types of writers And members receive unlimited free advice on all aspects of the profession, including confidential clause-by-clause contract vetting, as I've mentioned. And we campaign and lobby on the issues that affect authors. And we hold a wide range of events across the UK, which if you look at our website, you can find out what we do. We also administer a number of grants and prizes um, to support and celebrate authors at all stages of their careers.
0: There aren't any local chapters of the
1: Society of Authors? Yes. Yes, yes. we've got lots of local um, groups run by members Um, all across the country. We've got particularly active groups in Scotland and we've just recently got groups in Northern Ireland, um, Wales, um, every area of the country. And usually these are run by members but supported by us. And sometimes these local groups will just meet in a local pub or online Um, Sometimes they will get a guest speaker or sometimes they just want to meet for a chat and just foster a community, which is, you know, authors, it can be a lonely profession. And I think one of the things we do want to concentrate on is fostering a sense of community. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay, well, I think that's a good way to end this. Thank you so much for joining us. How can people get in touch with you?
1: Um, Just contact us at info at Um, Mm societyofauthors.org. Look at our membership. Um, criteria on the website and generally look at the website for information and also there are certain guides and resources that are free to non-members as well.
0: Okay and we'll put links for those in the blurb for the podcast episode. Great, thank you Lisa.
1: Thank you Kate.